again. I'm quite glad you've decided to revisit this, my small corner of the strange and labyrinthine world of the internet. As I mentioned in the previous video, our goal in this series is to talk through the content of the Christian faith with an eye to asking whether its particular pieces are plausible and whether they can be honestly held by modern persons. In the last video, and in this one, I'm addressing uh, some preliminary questions and orienting points, and in the next video, I'll start talking about the existence of God, and we'll move on from there. Last time I spoke about the initial steps one might take when they experience a crisis of faith, and I tried to give some diagnostics that might help discern the source of one's crisis. In this video, I want to, in some ways, predict the end of those reflections. If the last video helped propel us on our journey, this one helps to frame our journey between two realities, the reality of death and the reality of resurrection. Well, in some ways, predicated on other propositions, resurrection is far more plausible if God exists, for instance, the questions of, of death and of resurrection are so perennially human written into the fabric of our consciousness and our world of concern, that to, to speak about them at the front side as, as framing our own search and journey does seem appropriate. Indeed, to, to come to grips with both death and resurrection is to have some foundation upon which to find clarity of mind and everything else. What I mean by this, I think, will become clear by the end of, of this particular video. So, Starting with the reality of death then, one of, one of the things that I have found the most clarifying as I work through the questions that I have about the world is to feel the weight of the fact, as peculiar as this might sound, that I am going to die. Well, that sounds weird and dramatic, you might think, but, but bear with me. <laughs> in, in saying this, I, I don't mean to suggest that simply acknowledging the proposition that we're all going to die somehow gives us enlightenment. Uh, rather, I'd want to argue that our, our capacity to be intellectually honest is, at least in a lot of cases, proportionate to one's confrontation of their own death. It, it is no accident that so-called you know, you know, midlife crises, when one sees the, the finish line is a bit hauntingly closer than the starting line, uh, are, are a moment of existential clarity for so many people. Many act out of this clarity in, in problematic ways, of course, but, but others actually do mature and find a greater degree of wisdom as they see life from a more holistic vantage point at that age. And what's going on there? In, in part, coming to grips with, with death is just to come to grips with the limitation of any life project, including any intellectual project. And just as many middle-aged people cast off toxic relationships when they realize they want to spend their remaining time on more meaningful connections, so a, a deep awareness of our, our death encourages us to recognize that we only have this chance to live an ordinary human life and to know and to, and to discover. Even for, for those who believe in an afterlife, there is still something unique about this time that we have in just this human life. And when that, is, when that is felt and internalized, one realizes that there, there is no time to waste. We're, we're more motivated to examine ourselves in our intellectual journey to see if we're holding positions due to mere social pressure because we're, we're too busy to truly open ourselves to another idea or because we're driven predominantly by fear or by needing to be correct. Uh, in our conscience, each of us knows that the only true truth worth having is, is truth come by honestly and with integrity. 
And I'd wager, wager that that trying to keep your death before your eyes is a way of checking yourself against these kinds of ordinary vices in the pursuit of truth. But I'd also want to suggest that the pursuit of truth and the confrontation of death wind up taking us on similar intellectual paths as such. Uh, it, it is worthy of note that in, in the Bible, there, there is actually an association of life with truth and of death with lying. Uh, in John's gospel, for instance, note that, that Jesus calls himself the way, the truth, and the life, and the resurrection, and the life. The, the devil, by contrast, is described as a murderer from the beginning, or associated with death, immediately followed by being described as the father of lies. And why, what might be behind these associations? <laughs> Perhaps if we consider our, our ordinary response to death, we will begin to see an answer to this. In, in truth, death is ordinarily a matter of very profound anxiety for us. We're often in denial about it, but the truth about death is that it is in itself terrifying. We respond to it in various ways, of course. One set of strategies seeks to, to defang the power of death by stoic detachment or Nietzschean defiance, or in some cases, euthanasia. And there is admittedly some attraction to, to these options, to the bold insistence that we'll sort of seize some sort of controlled relation to our greatest fear, or, or off the tongue of the Monty Python folks, you know, always look at the bright side of death just before you take your terminal breath. Um, and they go on in that song, life's a laugh and death's a joke, it's true. You'll see it's all a show, just keep laughing as you go. Just remember that the last laugh is on you. In one way, that song at the end of The Life of Brian is a, is a particular strategy for coping with death. But I think that last line puts the lie to any notion that this or, or like options could possibly be our final reflection on this thing we call death. We long to defy the forces to which we are subject and to live outside the reign of death, seeking to control our relationship to it. But we all nevertheless succumb to its imperial demand that we submit to its reign, and it consumes those who mourn and those who poetize it with precisely the same indifference. Death, it often feels like, does in fact get the last laugh. And we are constantly reminded of this, despite our laughter and perpetual deferring of its inevitability in the, in the crucial juxtaposition of love and of death. We may sacrifice our own life on the altar of Nietzschean defiance, but we will do no such thing with those whom we love. Die for them we might, but simply poetize their death we will not. Um, the death of a loved one is a, is a fitting object of rage rather than mere resignation. We irreducibly in those contexts relate to death as to an enemy. None of which makes those options, of course, inherently untrue. Each version uh, of it attempts to confront death rather directly and sees this confrontation as necessary to living in the truth. But while this is not quite pr a proof against those options, it is worthy of note that all of this, all of those options, at least in my judgment, have the mark of a, of a kind of coping strategy and roughly parallel the psychology of someone experiencing Stockholm Syndrome, the slave who tells himself that his relation to the master isn't so bad after all. But beneath such coping mechanisms, 
is an irreducible tragedy that, that we all die and we don't want to die. <laughs> we dread it. And in light of this, one wonders if such strategies are actually fully honest, claiming to have, to have truly confronted death without evident grief and mourning and anxiety renders it unlikely that you have really stared your enemy in the face. Rather, such distantiation seems self-protective and distorted and therefore liable to miscalibrate the soul and the mind and make it vulnerable to error. The most profound human responses to death, of course, recognize this. And man's historic relationship to the consciousness of death is, is fascinating in this regard. Whatever one thinks about the question of whether there were, there were other human monkey creatures prior to Adam, it is interesting to note that, that anthropologists figure they can distinguish the human from the inhuman by the presence of burial sites. Identifying humanity is identifying a species that is uniquely conscious of and grieves death. Perhaps a a bit speculative, one interesting line of thought among anthropologists is that early human burial was thought to be a form of planting bodies. Just as sort of planting seeds gives new life, so perhaps the placing of human bodies in the ground can give us hope that new life grows out of the old, whether here or in some other location. Uh, this focus remains central from, from primitive man to, you know, the great civilizations, from primitive burial sites to the pyramids of Egypt. One of the most profound treatments of death is to be found in our earliest extant literature, the Epic of Gilgamesh. The, the epic tells the tale of an ancient warrior king whose savage reign is interrupted by the experience of life's greatest gift, the gift of friendship. Gilgamesh and his, his new friend Enkidu, at first enemies, become companions and enjoy life's pilgrimage together as brothers until Enkidu is taken from, from Gilgamesh by death. In, in, the, in the text is very moving. Uh, Gilgamesh's grief is just inconsolable and he, and he leaves his kingdom in search of the secret to eternal life. His search brings him to the, to the single human who has ever been granted immortality by the gods, an early Mesopotamian analog of Noah, the flood survivor. And from him, Gilgamesh learns that death is simply a cold, hard, dark fact of human existence. And so to live well is to, to come to grips with that limitation. And so Gilgamesh returns home and the tale ends with a celebration interesting of the Great Wall of Uruk, that which would remain after Gilgamesh, the city that he founded. Uh, the city then uh, in the ancient Near East is the, is the immortal testimony of its ancient conqueror and builder. Cities, sites of order in cosmic chaos in that cultural context outlived their inhabitants. And yet even here, the, the kind of the triumph of the city over the individual, the last laugh of death consumes civilizations as well. Most of our knowledge of Gilgamesh, after all, comes to us in the form of fragments and ruins of long gone kingdoms. It is perhaps for this reason that the Apostle Paul, when talking about the resurrection of the body, seems to suggest that without the resurrection, we might as well just eat, drink, and be merry. That is to say, by, by extrapolation, why live for anything but the present if there is no life beyond the grave? And that might sound a bit shallow to us. Surely there are reasons to justify noble sacrifice apart from the idea of resurrection. Is it, is it dying for others, for instance, just noble for its own sake? And it is here that, 
uh, the remembering the walls of Uruk is actually a bit significant. It, it, it is common in human civilization to, to dignify the acts of martyrs for a cause, but the cause itself dies with the people who enjoy it. The, the, the civilization dies with the people who are part of it. What is, what is going on when we, when we, what, what is going on when we, when we dignify the death of one for the sake of something larger is that we implicitly immortalize the cause or the recipients and, or the enjoyers and celebrators of martyrdom. We immortalize the fruits of a human act. But such an audience and such an enjoyment and such a civilizational reception of that act will likewise perish. And so perhaps Paul's logic still sticks. Without, without the resurrection of the individual, there is no ultimate preservation of civilization either. That's not his immediate point in 1 Corinthians 15, of course, but it is perhaps an extension of his point. Without victory over death, in the form of resurrection, it is very difficult to avoid the conclusion that our final orienting point is simply the present. It is rational in that case just to live for the now. But perhaps we could raise a, another objection to the good apostle. Let's, let's argue with Paul for a bit here. What about hoping for a disembodied afterlife? Isn't that worth living for, especially if there's the alternative between the, you know, the cloudy afterlife and the hot place? <laughs> I, can't, I can't speak for the apostle, of course, but, but one retort to this, I think, and I think Paul would say this, is to insist that the death of the body is a tragedy and just is itself a form of divine judgment. That is to say, you haven't really escaped judgment if you have a dead body. Having a dead body is inherently lawful. Death is, is a consequence of sin for Paul and a fitting object of great hatred for human beings. And this implies that humans are so irreducibly embodied that separation from the body, even in a state of continued consciousness, would, would also be a matter of great anxiety, uh, perhaps a psychological nightmare. For many of Paul's contemporary uh, uh, Greeks and Romans, this was certainly the case. When, uh, most famously, when, when Homer's Odysseus enters Hades and visits the spectral fragments of his late mother, uh, there is nothing but grief and pain in her vaporous existence. And, and it, it's possible that this is why the New Testament's few comments about the intermediate state, that, that, that moment between death and resurrection, uh, those, those, those moments are, are less about giving us a ton of information to satisfy our speculative faculties and rather more about assurances that will be comforted when that happens. The earliest readers' assumptions might not have been that this was a good state, but that separation from the body was quite scary. And so the New Testament assures the believer that such a state will, for them, be a state of comfort. In fact, they'll even be better off because they'll be with the Lord while they wait for the state of final resurrection. One might add here that those who imagine an eternal disembodied state to be wonderful are, are not likely to be actually imagining disembodiment in the full sense, but probably some parody of embodiment. There's a good pace case to be made that disembodiment of some sort would be nightmarish for human beings. And so those who imagine it as a good thing perhaps do not realize just how embodied in particular is their cognition and consciousness and even their imagination. One might even suggest that Paul's insistence here is backed up then by more modern reflections on the subject. There are in fact several academic disciplines these days wherein embodied cognition and the irreducibility of cognition and embodiment is a significant piece of what they study. 
In any case for Paul, without the resurrection, death wins. And crucially, this means that our anxiety concerning death is never really relieved. And it is precisely that lack of relief from our anxiety, I'd want to argue, that makes a further connection between death and the pursuit of truth. The epistle to the Hebrews speaks about the human slavery, not just to death, but to the fear of death. Living in a state of slavery to fear and anxiety is a recipe for a miscalibrated mind and heart, in addition to all of our other more willful distortions about reality. Moreover, if we, if we cannot discover the, the secret to defeating this fear, then the project of pursuing the truth is only as useful as its immediate payoffs, if we're working according to the logic of Paul in 1 Corinthians. And, and possibly this is why in, in the book of Acts, uh, the Greek philosophers are kind of portrayed as this kind of idly speculative uh, uh, sorts that is ultimately only engaged in futility, while Paul, who actually discusses very similar things to the philosophers with them, is implicitly portrayed as in a different category relative to his interests in philosophical questions. The Greeks are kind of idle, while Paul is engaged with the realities that they claim to seek. And note that the, the piece of Paul's message that divides his audience the most and perhaps distinguishes those most interested in truth from those who just kind of have a mental hobby uh, is precisely the message of resurrection. It's precisely resurrection that those who wanted to give Paul a, a second hearing in Acts 17 were wanted to kind of hear him come back and talk about. For Paul, philosophy without Christ is ultimately futile. It's in Christ that are all the hidden treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Uh, or, or in the words of Peter, to whom shall we go? He once asked Jesus, you have the words of eternal life. And what neither, what neither Gilgamesh nor the philosopher were able to find, the philosophers were able to find, Paul announces as having come near, a resurrected one who is the, is the secret to the perennial question of life and death, a central dialectic both in the, in the Hebrew scriptures as well as in all human cultures. And indeed, the claim of resurrection was so central to the spread of Christianity in the, in the, in the first centuries AD. Paul, who uh, on the one hand speaks about the reign of death, can in another text speak about life and immortality as having been brought to light by the gospel. And if one goes on to read the earliest church fathers after Paul and Peter, who were, who were one generation removed from the, the apostles, such as, as Clement, Ignatius, and Polycarp, and later Justin and others, this theme remains especially prominent in their, in their apologetics to those around them. A big advertisement of Christianity to the Roman world of the time was that they had despised death and had discovered eternal life in Christ. My good friend Patrick Steffen uh, has written this wonderful recent marvelous book called The Power of Resurrection, and he, and he demonstrates that uh, the message of resurrection was a large part of what caused the spread of Christianity in the Roman Empire. That is, that is the message of the resurrection of Jesus and the hope of eternal life in him actually kind of defeated Caesar because Caesar reigned over the empire through owning the power of life and death. Caesar's sovereign power depended on the perception that one's fate was in his hands, particularly you could see in the, in the action of clemency, you know, the big old thumbs up or thumbs down. <laughs> and this is precisely why the early martyr stories, particularly the ones in the Colosseum, were such a blow to Caesar's authority. The martyrs defied death and were 
unafraid of what Caesar could do to the body because they hoped in eternal life through the one who truly had the power of death and life in his own hands. As Jesus says in Revelation, and you can just kind of hear the resonance of this in the first century, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and of Hades. <laughs> to believe that was to deflate Caesar of his ultimate power. And this precisely for this reason that the, the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church. Here were people who were unafraid of Caesar. Uh, in his book, uh, uh, Stefan shows how this message filtered down into the practices and into the material culture of the early church and formed a disciplinary community in, in, for, in, in liturgical formation and architecture and in calendar making that was all united around the message of the resurrection. And of, and of course, the New Testament is not simply focused on escaping death in the abstract, you know, just, you know, avoiding the hot place. The focus is not simply on post-mortem survival, but also on a, on a state of existence in communion with God, rather than our current state of, to some extent, uh, uh, removal from, from communion with God. And I'll talk about divine absence in the next video, but it is, it is worth making this clarification just for the moment. In any case, if the, if the above connection holds that a, that a distorted relation to death will inevitably be a distorted relation to truth, so it might hold that relief from the anxiety of death gives us the possibility, at least, of a more free and relieved relation to truth. It is not a distinctively Christian insight, after all, to say that anxiety and fear get in the way of a clarified mind. But how do we handle our most fundamental anxiety in a state of absolute non-control over the reign of death? I mean, we're not in control of death. Not, as it turns out, by the strategies above that I mentioned earlier that amount to a form of denial, that is one's attempt to see some sort of existential distantiation and control over death. Rather, we remain ever dependent and not in control. However, because of Christ's resurrection from the dead, the deepest force to which we are subject is not death, but life. We remain subject to death, but death itself remains subject to the God who gives resurrection. You know, so C.S. Lewis's deeper magic, if you will. Uh, and in that inversion in ordering, in finding something beneath the fear of death, we are given the kind of rest and calm of soul, I would argue, that at least gives us the possibility of setting the mind and the soul upon a less agitated journey, and therefore one that is more able to be open to the truth. Of course, the, the obvious objection here is that this may very well be wishful thinking. Who doesn't want to believe in the defeat of death and life after death and postmortem survival and all this sort of thing? And I'll speak about those things more directly uh, in later videos, and particularly about Christ's resurrection, and there are good reasons to believe in both of those things. But for now, I just want to claim that the manner in which resurrections gives us rest is deeper than assenting to the mere proposition of the resurrection. Uh, trust me when I say that we can believe in the doctrine of the resurrection and still be dominated by the fear of death. It is only when we rest in a person who gives resurrection that we are able to be released from slavery to that fear. So the point is not that belief in an afterlife can't be a mere coping mechanism. Of course it can, and perhaps it is for some people. And, and precisely to that extent, it is often... Uh, a quickly worn off inoculate when death actually strikes. Uh, 
But belief in the resurrection is ultimately belief in a person who has power over death, a God who is, who is life himself and who is the God, not of the dead, but the God of the living. And fascinatingly, it is here that our, our minds are in the right space to actually notice, interestingly, and this is so relevant to the, to the things I want to be talking about in these videos, it's so relevant to how the Bible actually speaks about doubt. We speak about doubt so much these days that we simply assume our focus and that of the Bible when we see that word doubt are precisely the same. Uh, but, it, but in modern thought, perhaps, you know, iconically in the person of Rene Descartes, we think of doubt in terms of doubt versus certainty. Lots of stories and, and films dramatize some religious conflict in terms of having doubt versus being certain about something. The film Doubt, based upon a play, certainly has this resonance. And this is related to the biblical emphasis, but the biblical accent is a bit different. Rather than the binary of, of doubt versus certainty, the Bible is most interested in the binary of, of doubt versus trust. So, for instance, when, when Peter comes out onto the water to walk with Jesus and is, you know, distracted by the wave over there, he starts to sink and Jesus says, well, you of little faith, why did you doubt? The doubt is measured not against a proposition Peter believes, but in relation to his trust in a person, Jesus himself. And similarly, both Matthew and Mark record this kind of weird statement of Jesus that, uh, you know, if we have faith the size of a mustard seed and do not doubt, Jesus says, then we can move mountains. James says something similar in the first chapter of his epistle when he says that we should ask God for wisdom and not doubt, since the doubter, says James, shouldn't really expect an answered prayer, though perhaps precisely because of misunderstandings of the teaching of Jesus, James later clarifies that God sometimes does refuse our prayer requests because we ask things for the wrong motives, you know, to satisfy our flesh or whatnot. Nevertheless, however, however we are to interpret these, these kind of interesting and odd words of Christ, it is worth noting that there, here are three texts in Matthew, Mark, and James where doubt is explicitly brought up in the context of prayer to God. Mark's version even begins, have faith in God. And while this involves believing propositions, the, the accent of these three texts is nevertheless on the state of reliance in a person, which is what prayer actually expresses. That is, the focus is not so much on believe a thing and it'll happen, or, or more crassly in modern nomenclature, name it and claim it, as it is on an implicit and absolute trust in a divine person who is generous. The resolution to doubt, therefore, in Scripture is not primarily to gain more information, and certainly not to believe propositions without reason to believe propositions, but rather to pray with dependence upon God who is for us in his acts and gifts to us. So most of the time the Bible talks about doubt, the, the, the accent is on being double-minded in respect of a person. James speaks about such persons as tossed about by waves and wind, per, perhaps even recalling the incident with Peter that he might have been a witness to. This recollects, by contrast, Paul's language concerning the faith of Abraham, that, uh, that old Abe was, was unwavering, as Paul says in Romans 4, in respect of his faith. But of course, this does not imply, as Paul well knew, that Abraham never had any doubts or hitches in the more ordinary sense of being uncertain or unclear about things sometimes. We know from the text and narratives of Genesis that Abraham was that way. And God is compassionate to that. 
you know, as we mentioned in the last video, when John wasn't sure about Jesus being the Messiah, Jesus ministered to that. And the epistle to Jude, likewise, encourages us to be merciful to doubters, though it's not exactly clear uh, who he has in mind in that particular text, at least not that I'm aware of. Um, but one set of texts that does perhaps unite these two emphases, that is, believing in a proposition and trusting in God, can be found at the end of both Matthew and Luke's Gospels. And interestingly, the subject matter of doubt in those contexts is doubt in the resurrection of Jesus. Each gospel notes that when the apostles met the resurrection, the resurrected Christ, some doubted. Some of the apostles doubted when they saw Jesus. In Luke's account, Jesus even tells the doubters to touch him just to be sure. Uh, and we know that one of the major heresies in the New Testament and in the earliest Christian centuries were heresies about the real body of Jesus and about his bodily resurrection. And perhaps possibly this was a particularly doubtable proposition for early Christians, for whatever reason, background knowledge of the time. Even the Jewish Sadducees rejected belief in the bodily resurrection at the time. Note, interestingly, though, in Matthew 22, how Jesus diagnoses their problem. In this, in this particular text, he's talking to the Sadducees. He says, uh, in rejecting the resurrection to the Sadducees, that they know nothing of the scriptures or of the power of God. For Jesus to fail to believe in the possibility of resurrection is a failure to ascribe power to the God of the living. It is to fail to trust God above all else, to trust that he has solved our deepest anxieties, to trust that he can ultimately be so for us that as the Heidelberg Catechism puts it, he is our comfort in life and in death. Here especially, there is a relationship between doubting a proposition and doubting a person. For this reason, I, I've often found in times of doubting that focusing myself on the centrality of the resurrection of Christ and its implications concerning my own death both gives encouragement but also brings cl greater clarity to my mind and sense of reality. To the extent that I, I find myself feeling as though the resurrection is implausible, Perhaps my chief problem there is not that I don't have sufficient information or that the resurrection is inherently implausible, but rather that I have failed to hope and rest in the power of God who gives life. It is, of course, perfectly rational to believe that any God worthy of the name can resurrect the dead. And precisely as I rest in this fact, do I find myself resting in God himself. Moreover, precisely to the extent that I battle my own fear of death with the hope of resurrection. To that extent, I to the extent that I participate in that hope beyond all hopes, I would insist that my mind is, is not changed to some first century sophistry, but is rather most alive to reality, both as represented by the truth of resurrection, which says something about reality after all, and is negotiated by a mind freed from the reign of an enemy which would otherwise keep my whole body and soul in slavery to fear and anxiety. In short, I am I'm most able to grapple honestly with reality when I am on the one hand most in touch with the limitation, as I mentioned earlier in the video, that death means for my life's project and the use of my mind, and on the other hand, not overcome with the crushing fear and anxiety that is evoked from death. 
the former drives me not to waste my inquiry on whatever is motivated by by sin or vanity and the latter motivates me not to live in some coping state of denial or alleged stoicism both of which will distort the world i seek to understand the author to the hebrews claims that those who would please god must believe that he is and that he is the rewarder of those that seek him Relative to our own discussion, we are unlikely to believe in the possibility of resurrection if we do not believe in God's reality or being as such. For for Christians, we might say that the degree of comfort and orientation received in light of the resurrection is in some measure some measure of our implicit faith in God Himself and His in His being God for us. But for for those who are not yet persuaded that God is, we need we need to back up and work on that proposition. In the next several videos, then, I'll try to work through the question of God as such. Why, why I think we have good reason to believe in God as described in, in the classical Orthodox Christian tradition, and why there are so many hang-ups to this that make it sometimes feel implausible and sincerely hard for us to swallow, if you will. Uh, and throughout, I'll be, I'll be interested in an attempt to deal sympathetically with the difficulty many of us have in believing this. Uh, and, and therefore the difficulty many of us have in believing in resurrection by extension. And I hope for, for many at least we'll be able to reframe how to even think about what we mean when we talk about God and what it means therefore to say that he exists. But that's for next time. Until then, from, from one human face to another for now, farewell.